Welcome to the Wheel of Sport, home of the greatest sports stories ever told. My name's Ian McNally and with me is... Matt Lavery, Matt Lavery. How's it going this morning, Ian? Very well. You said this morning. That's You're true. in the morning. I'm in the a beautiful Melbourne evening. And our listener could be anywhere. <laughs> anywhere in the world. We know we've got plenty of listeners all over the world. Welcome again to another great sports story. Uh, let's get the wheel spinning, Matt. I was out on Saturday night, Matt, a rare occurrence with one of my friends and something that has never happened to me before. Somebody asked if they could buy cocaine off me. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Not your and friend. And the topic for this episode is... Out of bounds, and I'll take this one. Out of bounds. Matt, before we do, someone... A younger person tried to buy cocaine from me. Yeah, I was interested in that. If we're just going to gloss over it, well, uh, I don't know. Were, were you were you dressed looking like a delinquent or? I, I was surprised. I was dressed like a dad in a Target catalogue. I uh, my first words to her were, "Have you seen me?" <laughs> there you go. No, cocaine. I could not have been a more. <laughs> benign figure but i've never been so complimented in uh in my life very so, nice very nice a way to feel young and hip um that's uh that's a nice segue into into the story for this week um i'm going to tell the story of andreas escobar the colombian footballer probably one of their most beloved ever fo- uh, footballers in their history who was killed after scoring an own goal in the 1994 world cup obviously tragic tale you know, not probably not the most light-hearted one, where which ends in a murder. Feels more sad when it's a more recent murder as well. I know you often go down the wheel of history and cover murders from five hundred years ago, but <laughs> it feels feels a bit more raw and a bit more real when you're uh, when you when you sort of you know only only twenty six years ago uh, at the time of recording. It is a bit weird because my first World Cup memory was from Italian ninety, and England happened to do very well in Italian 90. Ireland did pretty well in Italian 90. And so I've got those memories. Uh, I was very young. And then 1994, USA rolls around. Ireland qualify, but England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland do not qualify for USA 94. So there was a sense, certainly in the UK, that apart from Ireland, there was looking, trying to pick another team to be interested in. Yeah. You know, um, so I imagine quite a few people chose a team like Colombia. Or... Because why not? Well, they had, <laughs> yeah, some, real, not? Well, they had some real characters. Um, I mean, Carlos Valderrama, probably most notably uh, famous for his sort of huge, huge hair, which was quite unusual at the time. Uh, they had some really talented players as well. You know, Festino Espria, uh, who went on to play in the Premier League with Newcastle, was just really tricky forward. Uh, Rene Higuita, uh, famous for the scorpion kick. He was the goalkeeper um, who once saved by sort of, I don't know, starting into a sort of a headstand and, and kicking it off with his, uh, his the back of his heels, if you remember. Yeah, he backheeled the ball, Matt, didn't he? He backheeled the ball in the middle of in a goal. Like he let it sail over his head and then Flicks it's so amazing up. if you have It's incredible, it's incredible. So good. Um, but all of the, all those players you mentioned, brilliant, but all completely bonkers. 
Yeah, like, but, uh, all, all of them have an element of like you would, as a manager, as a coach of a soccer team, you would be thinking, I really want this player's talent, but can I cope with everything else that they, the you know, the erratic nature of them, the, the kind of, yeah, explosive, the, all of them seem to be quite explosive characters and, uh, um, what the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, unpredictable. Uh, maybe, yeah. Well, in this story, I guess, I guess, you know, compared to what's going on in sort of wider Colombian society, these guys are not that unpredictable and uh, all fairly, well, just pretty professional guys, really. I want to focus particularly on uh, the captain, Andreas Escobar, who, as I said, his, his story's going to end, end tragically. Um, but this is a footballer who comes from Medellin. Um, he's, you know, a pretty good student, but he's absolutely committed to football growing up as a young lad. Um, and he had some tra- tragedy early in his life. His mum mum died when he was still fairly young. And afterwards, he just threw himself into football. You know, he ended up, uh, he had a choice sort of to stick with his studies or, or sort of throw himself more into the football. And he, uh, maybe after his mum's death, he decided, you know, you've got to seize opportunities and, you know, take risks in life. Let's let's enjoy life while we've got it. So he decided to, to, to pursue his dream and, and become a footballer. And he started playing for the team uh, Nacional. Uh, not to be confused with the national team, which I'm going to refer to later. Um, but he's playing for Nacional, uh, who are a club side with no sort of great history. You know, they're, they'd be all right, but not not brilliant. Uh, mainly because they could never keep their best players. You know, their stronger stronger players from the area would tend to move on to the richer clubs around Colombia. And they could never really sign the most expensive or most talented foreign players or, you know, players from other teams. So this is a side which is really going nowhere. It never has done. But around the time of Andreas Escobar joining them, it sort of coincides with Pablo Escobar, uh, no relation, his involvement in in the national side. So Pablo Escobar, as, as I'm sure you know, is, you know, probably the world's most notorious gangster uh, the world's most rich criminal. He's got he's got billions. It's hard to even fathom. Uh, you know, nobody really knows how much money this guy has. But he is one of the richest men on the planet. Like he's listed by Forbes. Most of his money's you know hidden in mattresses or in underground vaults. But he has incredible amounts of money, and you know he's he's at the heart of this sort of international drug problem. You know, he's he's largely responsible for getting all of the cocaine from Colombia into America. So the Americans have got a big problem with that, especially under uh, Ronald Reagan. So there's this sort of international story going on. And Pablo Escobar, I don't want to focus on him too much, on this this narco mass murdering drug dealer. But it's you can't sort of avoid him in, in Andreas Escobar's story. Well, I suppose, Matt, it's fair to say as well that you know, I'm sure people know that when you have a country or an economy where it's so heavily influenced by an illegal activity, and it doesn't really matter what it is. It can, in this case, it's narcotics. But even in the 1920s in America, it was alcohol. It pervades every part of society. It's And particularly uh, those parts of society like sports teams football clubs which generate 
an audience which generates revenue and is it possibly a good way to clean up money as well well that that, you're you're absolutely right that that was going to be my next point because football's a great place to launder money in Colombia at that time the Colombian people are mad on football they absolutely love it obviously football I'm talking soccer uh, for, for sort of the American and Australian listeners but the Colombians are turning out you know in tens of thousands to watch their their local teams play and because the ticket sales are in cla- cash it's a great place uh, to launder money on top of that you know players get sold and bought sometimes for millions of pounds so you know if you sell a player and you just declare less or rather you declare that you received less to the tax man, you know, you can then clean up um, your your sort of money there, you know, maybe clean up a million here or, you know, a couple of million there. A really simple way that football clubs would, can do it really every week is through the gate receipts. Yeah, I mean, exactly, yeah. Normally pay sales. tax on every ticket, but if you don't count a few hundred or a few thousand people going through the gate, well, you don't have to pay the tax on that, so... That money can be cleaned up elsewhere. So you, you're right; it is a perfect. It's almost like a honey trap for <laughs> people working in uh, the illegal industries. Well, that's it. So, so Pablo Escobar gets involved in two teams, uh, Nacional and uh, the Medellin team as well. And with the drug money coming into Nacional, that means that their team can improve. Uh, the results can improve. Better players stay. Better players are brought into the team and is that because of the money matt or is that because they're taking substances that are enhancing their performance oh no no it would be (laughs) uh, i mean i'm not gonna you know speculate on anything like that i've not seen anything around around uh, that now no it's it's more basically a lot of the players and the coaches said that their culture didn't change it just meant they were all being paid better you know, so the drug money coming in doesn't necessarily mean that they are now some sort of druggy club or, you know, involved in criminal activities themselves. They're just footballers. But as you said earlier, you know, the narco state is it's it's like an octopus and it's got it's got into everything in society. So the national team is, is basically just going about its business. But now it can be a more successful outfit because of the drug money that's coming in. But of course, Pablo Escobar isn't the country's only drug dealer, and he's not the only drug dealer that wants to launder millions of dollars. So some of the other drug dealers also start to invest in football teams uh, around Colombia, and something called narco soccer is born. Where basically, wow. got, I know you've got a situation where a lot of the teams are being bought or invested in by drug lords. So. There's a team called Millionaires, El Mexicano, famous drug dealer, he, he owns them. As I've already said, Pablo Escobar's got Nacional and Medellin. Um, there's a guy called Miguel Rodriguez, who's sort of, I think, maybe Pablo Escobar's biggest rival. Um, he, he, he owns America de Cali. You've now got this situation where the, the, the owners of these teams are all drug lords. And from there, of course, it's not a big jump before the corruption and the bribery of officials starts. You know, some of the footage you've got is just crazy because obviously the fans, you know, don't like to see their... don't like to feel like the game's corrupt. So they start to get very upset. You know, there's frequently riots at these matches, you know, pitch invasions, 
you know, fans and spectators running onto the pitch to confront the officials when they've given a, you know, a, a sort of unfair or false decision. It's, you know, it just becomes farcical that the sort of any sporting integrity in Colombian football at that time is just being eroded by the corruption and bribery of, you know, which has been conducted by these uh, these drug lords. Um, really famous incident, actually, very, uh, you know, real tragic, if, if that's the right word. Um, in 1989, uh, there was one match where... Uh, Medellin, one of Pablo Escobar's teams, played America de Cali, and America de Cali had uh, bribed the referee. They paid him off, so he he gave results against uh, Pablo Escobar's team. And at the end of the match, Pablo Escobar just instructs his gangsters to go and kill the referee. Um, so Alvaro Ortega, the referee who who'd received a payoff, is is shot down and murdered in the street by Pablo Escobar's hitmen after the match. So is me being critical of VAR. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's one of those things though, isn't it? Is that the integrity of officials and things is is on such a fine thread. Like if you know, it's something we take for granted, but it is on a fine thread. I mean it it's but it I suppose it just reflects the state of the country and you know, I'm sure there were police at the match. The police are getting bought off when the riots happen. It's just complete disarray, isn't it? It's uh, how they're managing to even uh, get the players on the pitch and, and get this, you know, it's, it's a very admin-heavy sport, soccer, isn't it? So yeah. the, the fact they're even getting through the admin and, and managing to take part in this competition, uh, shall we call it, uh, favourably, uh, each week is is quite extraordinary in itself. It's I mean it's 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 a, it's a really strange time. It's really corrupt. But you know, if, at the same time, the, or maybe the, the talent available is is getting higher and higher because there's been more and more investment. And in some ways, Colombian sport is improving. So in 1989, same year as Ortega, the referee, was killed. Uh, Nacional, the team that Andreas Escobar is playing for. They reached the Copa Libertadores uh, final, which is the South American final for the best club team um, to play in. And a Colombian team's never won it. They've never reached the final. The Nacional are now there. And, uh, you know, after losing 2-0 at half-time, they then come back, uh, score a goal in the last minute to, to force a penalty shootout. And Andreas Escobar's there. He, he's, he scores the first goal for Nacional. And then eight kicks later, Nacional are champions. So the Colombian teams are improving. Um, although when they play each other, sometimes it can become can become a bit farcical. But Andres Escobar, he's now the you know part of the team which is the champions of South America, and of course they are now need to go and meet Pablo Escobar at his ranch to collect their bonuses. I think the stories are basically that Andres Escobar wasn't always that comfortable with it. But it was something that he he realised he had to do. But you know, a lot of the footballers and a lot of were, were poor people, right? They would come from poor backgrounds, very modest, um, in a poor country in Colombia. And Pablo would have a good relationship quite often with the poor. You know, he's a mass murderer, but he would do a lot of things for the local community. So he'd, he'd build soccer pitches, he'd he'd put in floodlights. You know, he'd improve facilities. 
And it wasn't just football, you know, he'd build churches, he'd build houses, you know, hospitals. He would do that and the poor would really appreciate him because they felt the government didn't look after them. But Pablo Escobar was one of them. He was also poor. So you've got this situation whereby he becomes sort of like a a sponsor, if you like, to a lot of these people, especially the footballers that are growing up. So they're coming up growing up on the slums, playing on Pablo's pitches, they knew who donated them. So they're actually kind of grateful to him for what he's given to the poor communities. And they sort of are, you know, quite happy to turn a blind eye to his, to his drug dealing or sort of ignore that, or maybe edit out of their own minds. That's amazing, Matt, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's a very uh, common trope, isn't it, of gangsters to kick a bit back into the community. But imagine... Andreas Escobar going to Pablo's ranch. I mean, or a lot of those players. I would be terrified yeah. whether it was actually going to come back, you know, or expected to dabble in drugs or other erratic behaviours that might be happening in Pablo's ranch. I just imagine it to be a completely debauched place. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was very civilised and nice, but... Yeah, I mean, it, you, you get sort of conflicting reports um, because... I think I think Pablo Escobar was famous for ruling with such a, you know, you talked about the bureaucracy before, but I think he was quite bureaucratic. He ran, th- he was very efficient as an administrator. You know, he ran a tight ship, and people sort of weren't just killing each other like willy nilly. It wasn't like that. It, there was almost a, a structure to the chaos. Uh, after Pablo Escobar was killed, I think it created a, a, a bit of a power void, which which we'll talk about later, but. For these players that you mentioned there to go and see him, for a lot of them it was normal. A lot of them would be would be kind of friendly with him. You know, some of them I'm sure would probably really like and approve of his lifestyle because he, you know, he's a probably a bit like a rock star kind of thing. You know, he's got more money than anybody could imagine, and so I think he was quite inspiring to a lot of these footballers. They weren't necessarily intimidated. And one of the one of the anecdotes I really like uh, is. Pablo Escobar and another guy I mentioned earlier, El Mexicano, they were rival drug dealers, but they had um, almost a sort of begrudging respect and almost were on friendly terms. So sometimes what they would do is, um, when things were going well, they would just write down their favourite 11 players, a dream team, from any teams across Colombia or across the world. Then they would pay those individuals to play in their private team, fly to fly them to Pablo Escobar's ranch <laughs> and these players would turn up you know from anywhere and the drug dealers bet on the outcome and they've got the best Colombian players the best foreign players all just playing in these private matches you know fly in play and fly out meanwhile these two gangsters it's probably I, I think that's probably the least corrupt football <laughs> actually happened in Colombia at the time probably the most honest yeah. game but it was private it was just for just for the drug dealers <laughs> entertainment I mean how would you recruit a f- match officials for an event like that oh I mean if, if, it, with a cocaine rich sport it brings a new meaning to a linesman <laughs> I mean <laughs> trying to get <laughs> running the line um the whole world to me is terrifying but mm. I, I think you you are coloring that in very well uh, actually uh, you don't think of uh, a criminal being inspirational but clearly he here he is pablo being inspirational to pro- probably a whole generation in in many respects i'm sure there was undercurrents of uh 
parents and stuff in family is saying no <laughs> this mm. is a bad man but meanwhile while all this is going on as i've mentioned and i'm i, I don't want to spend too long talking about pablo escobar although i sort of feel like i already am he uh the americans want him they want to extradite him they want to get him in america so they can basically kill him i think they, they they're saying that the death penalty is available for him he doesn't want to go so he's trying to get immunity from being extradited so he gets himself i mean you uh, as you said there he's an inspiration he gets elected he becomes an elected official into the house of representatives in colombia um so that he's got diplomatic immunity so the poor vote for him you know on mass to get him in he's basically booted out for being a criminal um which basically starts this this horrible period of violence Two politicians are killed for not tolerating him and, and committing to bring him to justice. Thousands of people are, are killed or assassinated. And during this time, Andreas Escobar, you know, he's just looking at Colombian society with real upset. So he's wondering what he can do. He's he's a footballer. He's, you know, he's famous. He's got money himself. So he starts giving money to poor children and, and he pays for a few scholarships for people to go to school. So he's he's trying to do a bit, but you know what Andreas Escobar, the footballer, can do, you know, in terms of financial clout, you know, and of course he can't criticize Pablo Escobar as nobody can, or else, else you know, you you could be killed. And there's this famous phrase at the time, you know, the silver or the lead. There's your. Do you want to be bribed or do you want to be killed? Eventually, the politicians give up on the extradition thing. He buys them off essentially, uh, so it's corrupted. But extradition won't happen, which means Pablo Escobar can surrender and goes into his own prison, which is which is just mad. He he builds himself his own prison. It's like a mansion um, called the cathedral, and he, he he says, right, well, I'll go to prison then. Which he builds himself. He can, you know, he's he's got his friends visiting him. All of the other people in the prison are his mates. It's it's a farce again. He's not really in prison. That just sort of gives the background, I guess, because meanwhile on the pitch. Colombia are coming together as a national football team to try and unite the people. Colombia haven't qualified for a World Cup in 28 years. They, you know, haven't had a good history, but as I've said, they're probably in their golden generation. This is the best time for Colombian football. And their coach, Maturana, you know, he speaks a lot about uniting Colombia through football, you know, encouraging the players to be happy, to play with pride for their country. And he gets this great run going where in the 26 warm-up matches to qualify for the World Cup, they only lose one and they only concede two goals. So the Colombian team are on a, the national team are now in an incredible run. All of these great Colombian players are playing for them. The stadiums are packed and society is sort of uniting. You know, when, when Colombia, Colombia win, society win. You know, people are less angry, people are less upset the poorer people have something you know to enjoy and celebrate in you know whilst there's been this period of of horrible violence and and Colombia end up qualifying for the World Cup in the in the last game they have to win uh, against Argentina so they travel to Argentina and they beat them 5-0 okay so they really are going into the World Cup as contenders like serious contenders uh, it's 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 hard to to sort of go back with hindsight and and remember but going into the 94 World Cup 
people really did see them as, as one of the favourites. They were ranked number four in the world at the time. Um, and Pele, the great Brazilian footballer, you know, was asked for his prediction and he said he thinks Colombia is the favourite. As we know that Pele does other drugs uh, available by prescription. Uh. <laughs> is this because he advertised Viagra once? Is that what you're getting yeah, at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grow up, Ian. <laughs> Goodness me. I-, I got some Viagra eye drops, but they only made me look hard. <laughs> God. <laughs> Goodness me, Ian. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Is that right? So it's the eve of the World Cup, right? <laughs> you and your eye drops, man. Uh, and uh, yeah, basically, the Colombian national side are trying to show it. The World Cup's going to be in America. I don't think I even mentioned that. This World Cup is in America. So the Colombian national team are going to go to, to America, which at this time in Colombia, you know. There's, there's obviously all these problems in Colombia and a lot of people are saying it's they were started by the Americans for saying they wanted to maybe kill Pablo Escobar. So there's a lot of anti-American feeling in Colombia. There's probably some pro-American feeling as well. So it's, what can I say? It, basically, they're trying to unite the people, uh, the Colombian national team, through the football. But in the build-up, there's more scandal there's more stories still to happen the goalkeeper Rene Higuita is arrested um, after talking to some journalists on his way out of visiting Pablo's fake prison it creates this national scandal because he's just popped in to see him and then he comes out and he starts talking to all of the journalists and yeah there's this national scandal it's like people start to realize that Pablo Escobar's not really in prison but what they don't realize is the whole squad had actually been there to visit Pablo Escobar just not long before and they'd actually played a match with him so you know the influence of Pablo Escobar even though he's supposedly in prison he's just really in his own mansion and he's playing football with the Colombian team so he's playing with the fourth best team in the world oh it's mad <laughs> in, in prison it's so good <laughs> that is wild but Rene Higuita's visit the goalkeeper's visit it, it creates a problem Rene Higuita's arrested and the government decide enough's enough. Pablo Escobar's laughing at us, pretending he's in prison. So we're going to go into that prison and properly arrest him. So they they set off. But when they get there, Pablo Escobar's gone on the run. He's escaped from his imaginary prison. He's now on the run and basically he's pursued and, and ultimately killed by the Colombian authorities. So with Pablo Escobar gone, this creates... A power vacuum and there's more violence there's more problems in Colombia at that time um, one of the arguments is that with him gone there was no sort of strong overlord and other people fancied maybe they could take charge uh, so it just creates a chaotic society one of the footballers a guy called Chonto Herrera he, his three-year-old son's kidnapped uh, in the build-up to this World Cup Andres Escobar and his girlfriend are almost killed by a bomb. It's it's just a really bad time. Andres Escobar pretty much decides he's had enough. He wants to represent Colombia well, but he he also decides he's going to leave. He's been offered a job playing with AC Milan in Italy, which would be the first time Colombians gone to play for AC Milan, who were at the time a big successful uh, European side. And he decides to get married as well. So he says to his 
to his girlfriend. Let's get married. We'll go. I'll go to the World Cup. Uh, and when I get back, uh, that's what we're going to do. So go off to the World Cup. Higita's in prison. He's been arrested. P- some people say that the, the charges that were brought against him were sort of false. It was just to, to get him because he was in with the Escobar crowd. But either way, he can't go to the World Cup. So they've, they've called up this guy, Cordura. Uh, so he's now going to be the goalkeeper. And it's, it's kind of a difficult time for the Colombian side because they arrive at the World Cup as favourites or one of the, one of the contenders. It's, it's not enough just to be the favourite. You've actually got to turn up and win. And in the first round, they, they play Romania and they lose 3-1. It's, it's a terrible performance. You know, one of the goals they let in is just, just awful. Uh, it's like 35 yards out from the wing. This shot comes in and the goalkeeper just seems to... Is that Hadji? Yeah, it was Hadji. Giorgio Hadji was the, the Romanian. And it just flew past the goalie. And Colombia just weren't ready to lose. They couldn't really accept it I think the team couldn't accept it and the people back home in Colombia weren't ready either there was huge problems a lot of the drug lords and gangsters had bet huge money to launder the money you know money through money laundering they'd made these huge bets on the Colombian national side to win when they lost those those gangsters had lost their money and again there was more violence back in in Colombia one of the players brothers was killed in Medellin it's just awful imagine you're at the world cup and you you get a phone call saying oh your brother's just been killed maybe in as a as a reaction to your to our team's bad performance it's just just horrible like the pressure on this colombian side caused by you know the gangsters and the the criminal element back back home they just weren't ready for it well, the next game's up against the hosts, and basically they have to win. They're going in to play the to play the USA, and Colombia and America had played a lot of times before uh, in sort of the the years building up to this World Cup. Uh, obviously, you know they're not too far away. They play in some of the same competitions, and Colombia always won. Okay, it was never never a problem. But the difference is in this game, they have to win. So. There's a level of tension which maybe the players aren't used to when they're when they're facing an American side, and then in the build up to this, uh, you know, as if that's not enough, the players start receiving death threats. You know, they're being told they have to win, or they're going to be killed. This was tense before, Matt. This was very tense before. Oh. Even like any World Cup or major tournament is tense beforehand. There's anxiety all around, and then to lose your first game, and then. You know, the death threats aren't going to calm you down, are they? No, it's not, <laughs> it's, not doing you any favours. Well, it's not just that as well. Even the coach is being threatened and told what he needs to do. So they, he, he was going to play this guy, Barabbas, who was kind of one of the key players in that team. But the drug lords didn't want him to play because they wanted players from their own club teams to play so that their value would increase, you know, because they, they'd, have, they'd have played in the World Cup. So the drug lords are now saying to the coach... You need to pick this player who plays for my team to, you know, give him a chance. So now the coach has been dictated to and he's been told if he picks Barabbas and then all of the squad's going to be killed on return. So the coach feels he has no choice. So he pulls Barabbas out of the team. The players, you know, phone their parents and families. And this is this is the build up to how they go out to play a must win game against USA. As you say, in terms of preparation, you just can't imagine really anything worse than the level of stress that's you know being being given to this side. The game starts. Colombia, you know, probably the better team. They're attacking, but they just can't score. And then 
the USA counter-attack, they get it up the other end, Andreas Escobar scores an own goal, and that's it, they're eliminated. They've lost two games, and Colombia, you know, their, their World Cup dream is over. They're uh, They're going home. That's really hard, isn't it? Because even without all of the extra politics and things that are happening, it's just really hard for any nation who feel that they should be on the world stage, fourth in the world, get to the World Cup. And it's so cruel, like two games and that's it, isn't it? It's just so the tap turns off really quickly in the World Cup setup. Yeah, that's If it. you don't perform in it. your first or second game, it's like... And you, they'd kind of be looking around at each other going... What do you mean? Is that's it? Like, <laughs> what do you mean? We have we've got one more game mm. to play, and then we just go home. Like it's go so home. punishing. They waited decades to get in the in the World Cup as well. Yeah, yeah. They'd waited twenty eight years, and then it was uh, after this. It was going to be another twenty years before they could return to the World Cup. But as I said at the start, you know, it ends it ends tragically. Uh, Andreas Escobar returns to Medellin. Um, he writes a he writes a letter. To, which is printed in the newspapers, um, but he goes out one night. Uh, you know, he starts to feel better back in his hometown. He's visiting his his own people. He decides to go out one night, gets into an argument. You know, some guys are taunting him, and uh, he ends up being shot six times and and is killed. So basically, he's killed for scoring an own goal. And he's twenty seven years old, uh, and that's it. His life life's over. I mean, it it created obviously a huge public outpouring of, of sort of support and emotion in, in Colombia. 2,000 people attended his funeral. Um, but that was sort of the beginning of the end of the Colombian t- uh, period of, of their golden age. A lot of the players retired, like Carlos Valderrama, he retired because he just he didn't feel like he should have bodyguards. He didn't want them. And if that's what a footballer was, then he didn't want to be a footballer anymore. Uh, others, like Vestino Espria, just said, oh, well, I'm not going to play for the national team anymore. I don't want to play for Colombia I'm still going to be a footballer, but I've had enough of this. Um, the fans are disillusioned. Obviously, they they've seen what's what's happened. You know, somebody's been killed as a result. They know the corruption's there, so they just stop turning up. They stop watching, which you know takes away from the atmosphere. It also means that there's less opportunity to launder the money. And of course, a lot of the gangsters, as I said, Pablo Escobar's already been killed. Others are getting arrested, having their assets seized. It's the Colombian uh, government and American government go after them. So these football teams end up being sort of listed as, you know, bad organisations that can't continue. And that's that's it. It's uh, it's, it's sort of the end of, of Colombian football. And it wasn't until 2014 that they returned to the World Cup. So it was, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a long time since. It's um, something that obviously sticks in the memory. Um, but it's so great that you were able to tell the whole story behind it Matt and the reason it happened I think my memory of it is that it was like a freak incident or something happened but clearly it wasn't it was like a a reflection of the systematic uh, way that society was operating in Colombia and a fascinating insight so many bits of that story that you could really delve into but well done hopefully it's a bit of a tribute to Andreas as well and I know he's inspired many people not just in Colombia but internationally to uh, maybe uh, using football to empower some sort of movement beyond the sport itself definitely Uh, thanks Matt and thanks for listening to the Wheel of Sport podcast make sure you do share it with your friends if you've got one of the stories in our back catalogue that you think 
I can't just keep that to myself. Do share it on. We've got so much of a massive back catalogue now, over 60 episodes of amazing stories. Uh, so please do share it. Do that now and also leave a review wherever you get your podcast. That would be really appreciated. Do get in touch as well through uh, Twitter or Instagram at The Wheel of Sport or uh, The Wheel of Sport at gmail.com i think i hear my children in the background matt sounds uh, like it. i and talking of children uh the thing i'm uh stood out for me in that story was how much of a administrator pablo escobar was matt and i just want to say to any children listening to this if you want to be a drug lord on an international scale try hard at school because those office skills they're vital <laughs> vital so don't give up keep going Get your, see your qualifications through and you too could be a murderous drug lord. Uh, thanks, Matt. <laughs> thanks, Ian. Thanks, we'll, listeners. We'll see you next time on the Wheel of Sport. I'm off to do some eye drops. <laughs> <laughs>